Truth Espresso, episode 80. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> and now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. <sighs> this is Truth Espresso. With Daniel Minnick. Well, hello and welcome to Truth Espresso. This is your host, Daniel Minnick. And on this episode, we are actually going to continue a series of episodes dealing with the identity of Jesus Christ and God as Trinity. But in dealing with this and in walking through some errors that we encounter from church history dealing with false ideas about Jesus, we are actually using superheroes. And so if you haven't listened to episode 79 before this one, I would encourage you to listen to it because we are actually going in chronological order. And the past episode, episode 79, the one before this one, asks the question, is Jesus like Superman? And of course, the answer that we arrive at in that episode is no, because we compare the idea of Jesus being like Superman to the ancient heresy of Gnosticism, and in particular, Docetism, the idea that Jesus only appeared to be human. And so I would highly encourage you to listen to that episode. Now, this episode can stand on its own, but if you really want to get the full-orbed picture of who Jesus is, particularly by comparing to what other people in church history have tried to propose as the identity of Jesus and figuring out what Jesus is not, we figure out what Jesus is. And so, asking the question in the last episode, is Jesus like Superman? We said, no, Jesus didn't just look, act, and appear to be human, but really be an alien from another planet, and he didn't just have a body that wasn't human, it was just super, but looked human. Jesus really did have a human body and a full human nature because Jesus was fully human. And we looked at some various scriptures in the last episode to see that Jesus is indeed human. Anytime he's referred to as anthropos, as man, that means he's human. And the reason Jesus had to be fully human and not just some alien who looked like human, not a phantasm, not some alien body that was human-like, or even that he was human in every way but just had some kind of divine blood. No, every component of his human nature had to be there and it had to be human. Why? Because if the law is given to man... The law is given to humanity, and humanity is created in the image of God, then the only way you can have a Redeemer to pay for the sins of humanity as a substitute is that you must have someone who is fully human. And so that's how we answered the question, is Jesus like Superman? No. 
Because Superman wasn't human, he only looked human, but Jesus was also fully human. And now, in this episode, we are going to ask the question, is Jesus like Batman? Because we said that Jesus wasn't like Superman, because he didn't just look human, he had to be fully human, we ask the question now, is Jesus like Batman? Well, who is Batman? I mean, if you were to ask me, Batman was one of the coolest superheroes in the DC comic universe. And one of the reasons I really like Batman is because of his personality. If you look at personality tests, such as the Myers-Briggs personality test, everyone's going to ascribe to him a personality of INTJ, and I just also happen to test as an INTJ, and so I have a personality similar to that of Batman. That doesn't mean that I also act like a superhero hiding in the shadows at night trying to clean up the city or fight bad guys. No, it's just the, the personality type, not necessarily the particular actions. But since I relate to Batman personally, that's why I have a particular favoritism to Batman. Another thing that I like about Batman is that his superhero abilities really were earned. He had to do a lot of training. He has to use a lot of his ingenuity to be a superhero. He didn't just get it zapped into him or inherit it from another planet. Batman had to work hard for, and I definitely respect that. And so I think that's one of the things that I really like about Batman. So just who is Batman according to the DC Comics universe? Batman, technically speaking, is an alias identity of Bruce Wayne. Now, of course, Bruce Wayne is not a real person in the real world. He's a made-up fictional character. But Bruce Wayne in the DC comic universe is the son of Thomas and Martha Wayne. Those were his father and mother, respectively. And as the son of Thomas and Martha Wayne, who themselves were wealthy owners of a large company called Wayne Enterprises, Bruce Wayne ultimately inherited this IPO publicly traded company of Wayne Enterprises from his father. Now, how did he do this? Unfortunately, it was because his father and mother were tragically murdered when he was a kid. They were shot to death with a gun. And the butler that they had hired, Alfred Pennyworth, basically raised Bruce Wayne as his own son until he was a grown man. And then Bruce Wayne inherited Wayne Enterprises, was able to tap into that wealth and then use that wealth for ultimately his superhero underground occupation at night. Now, by the time Bruce Wayne revealed his identity of Batman, his alias alter ego of Batman to Gotham City, he had acquired many skills to overwhelm his opponents. He became a master of his own mind and body. He trained both mind and body to their fullest. He is incredibly intelligent and has incredible athletic prowess and is very skilled in various forms of combat, armed and unarmed. Now, let's answer the question, is Jesus like Batman? 
Now, I know as Christians, we have this uh, affection toward Jesus, and as we like to live in the make-believe universe of superheroes, we might want to think of Jesus as a superhero. After all, as we looked at in the last episode, Jesus did some pretty amazing things. He walked on water, he ascended into heaven, he healed people of sicknesses, he even raised people from the dead. And so, with superpowers like that, it is tempting to think of Jesus like we think of the superheroes that we read of in the comic books and see in various TV shows and movies. But how, then, does Jesus compare to Batman? Let's come up with some similarities, shall we, with each of the superheroes that we're going to discuss, just as we did in the last episode with Superman, We're going to come up first with some similarities before we discuss the differences. So how does Jesus compare to Batman if we stretch our imaginations a bit to see some similarities? Now Batman, number one, is outstandingly intelligent. He's often one step ahead of the bad guys. And Jesus, likewise, outwitted his enemies who would question him by asking counter-questions of them that they couldn't answer. As we'd see in Matthew 22, 46, Mark 12, 34, and Luke 20, verse 40. And number two similarity, Batman is a vigilante crime fighter, often to the chagrin of Gotham City's establishment, government, and police force. And in like manner, not as a crime fighter, but Jesus was very much a vigilante minister, much to the chagrin of the religious establishment of Jerusalem. And number three similarity, Bruce Wayne spent years training and disciplining his body before arriving unexpectedly on the scene as a mysterious crime fighter. And likewise, Jesus disciplined his body and endured temptation and fasting before engaging in his ministry that early on demanded secrecy. And number four similarity, although Bruce Wayne is fabulously wealthy, he puts his life on the line and sacrifices to fight crime at night. And likewise, Jesus, being wealthy as God the Son in heaven, left the splendor of heaven to live a life of near poverty in which he described it as having nowhere to lay his head, according to Matthew 8, verse 20 and Luke 9, verse 58. And now finally, number five similarity between Batman and Jesus. Batman developed a ninja technique of seemingly vanishing and appearing out of nowhere. And likewise, Jesus sometimes had a way of escaping a crowd in plain sight as if he disappeared. Uh, Luke 4 verse 30, John 8 verse 59, and John 10 verse 39. So those are some similarities between Batman and Jesus if we just stretch our brains a little bit to accommodate uh, some very stretched similarities. And now, what makes Jesus different from Batman? Can we really say that Jesus is like but not like Batman in a way that he's more like Batman than not like Batman? 
Now, remember, if you listened to the last episode, we discovered that Jesus was not like Superman in certain important ways, particularly that of nature. Superman is an alien from the planet Krypton. And although, as I mentioned before, his body visually and functionally resembles human bodies in every way, he actually is not human. He only looks like one. The difference in extraterrestrial location gives Superman his superpowers that make him more like a divine being rather than a human being. But we talked about that uh, Gnostic and Docetist ideas of Jesus were basically that he was like Superman, but those were errors. Docetism meant seemed like. It was that Jesus only looked human, but he wasn't really human. When, If you were to test things out, if you had a human detector, it would not beep. It would not go off around Jesus because his nature was not human, according to Docetists. And Jesus didn't leave footprints in the sand. He only appeared to die, like some smoke and mirror show. And naturally, according to docetistic ideas, salvation was not through an incarnation. Jesus did not have to take on or assume a human nature. It was through the mysteries found in his teachings that would help humans escape their corrupted material bodies and become a superhero spirit creature like Jesus is. And so Christian orthodoxy totally rejects this because docetistic and Gnostic ideas of Jesus as kind of a superman makes him not able to be a substitute. It denies the idea that his death could be atoning substitute. His life could not be lived in our place as someone fully obedient to the law, to be our substitute, to be the perfect Lamb of God, and then to die as being a representative of humanity. Humanity, Docetism, Gnosticism denies this, and so the idea of Jesus as Superman is an error because it denies substitutionary atonement. He has to be fully human to be our substitute. And so now we turn to Batman. Is Batman a candidate for what Jesus is like? Is Batman an alien from another planet like Superman was? Uh, no, he was born to two human parents. So, is Batman then human? Well, obviously, yes. Batman is just as human as anyone else in Gotham City. Now, he may have many skills that are perfected at levels that most humans don't have, but they are all human abilities. So, Batman is indeed human in every way. Even if he's an excellent human being, he's still human. Does Batman have any superpowers other than being the best human he could be? Well, if you have actually seen that Justice League movie that came out in 2017, there's that humorous part in the movie where Bruce Wayne has uh, Barry Allen, who's the Flash, get into his vehicle, and Barry Allen says, what's your superpower again? And then Bruce Wayne says, I'm rich. (laughs) So 
Bruce Wayne's wealth allows him to buy and invest and develop all this cool technology that helps him get places, you know, fly, but not of superpower, but in a craft and a grappling hook that allows him to swing around and help him disappear at a moment's notice by going up out of sight and, you know, all kinds of gear like batarangs and a suit made out of material that can resist some gunfire and, you know, all kinds of stuff. His wealth essentially becomes his superpowers that also aid his excessively trained abilities. But as I mentioned before, they're human abilities. Batman learned ninja techniques by studying in the League of Shadows before the League of Shadows was revealed to be evil and want to destroy cities like Gotham because they believed that Gotham was beyond saving. And so Batman had to fight against Ra's al Ghul, the leader of the League of Shadows, and other members of it because his views of saving Gotham were not aligned with their views of destroying it. So Batman developed incredible physical prowess incredible combat in martial arts and the use of weaponry and the ability to be almost invisible at will just by advanced techniques of motion, but nothing there was superhuman. Although Batman is really cool, he could never be for us what we need for our savior. He could freak out some bad guys, and he could clean up a city during the night, but Batman could never save us from the due penalty of our own sins. But wait a minute, Daniel, you might ask. You said that Superman could not be our substitutionary atonement because he wasn't human. And now you're going to say that Batman can't be our substitutionary atonement because he he's only human? He is human? Yes, I will explain that a little later. Now, just as an aside, I could have picked other superheroes for this episode for this comparison with Jesus as a really cool human being superhero. For instance, Hawkeye or Black Widow from the Marvel Avengers could have served as examples of extraordinary humans who are superheroes. But Batman is probably the most well-known and has the longest history. And of course, of note, we aren't going to limit our superheroes to DC Comics. We will have plenty of examples from both DC and Marvel to satisfy your superhero fix, and to show that I have no loyalty to either superhero comic universe. So, if you listened to the last episode, once again, (laughs) I do like to point to past episodes, especially when I'm on the series. But if you did listen to the last episode, and as I just mentioned earlier, the reason Superman can't be like Jesus, or rather Jesus can't be like Superman, is because of the error, the historical error during the early church called Gnosticism, and a particular flavor of it called Docetism. So, with Batman, or for example, Hawkeye or Black Widow, (laughs) as excellent human beings, incredible fighters, superheroes, but human only, we're going to look at another early church error called 
Ebionism. And we're also going to look at a similar error that's later on in church history. But first, let's look at Ebionism and what its views were about who Jesus is. And we will put that to the test to see if that's really who Jesus is. So let's look at a sect in early church history that eventually developed a name and beliefs contrary to Christian orthodoxy. The Ebionites were a heavily Jewish sect that believed that Jesus was perhaps a Messiah or a precursor to the Messiah. Over time, these people became known as Ebionites. And the sect known as Ebionites get their name from the Hebrew word Ebion, meaning poor. So they took a vow of poverty. And we'll get into that a little bit later. So many early Christians actually may have been called Ebionites in the first century because of the poverty that they endured at that time. But ultimately, the split between the early church and those who would later embrace the term Ebionites as a system of doctrine happened pretty quickly. So what are some of the beliefs and practices of the Ebionites and what are the problems related to how they view Jesus Christ? Okay, so let's look at the Ebionites. The sect who called themselves the Ebionites, as they identified later on, took a vow of poverty. Because as I mentioned, the Hebrew word Ebion means poor, and they have several verses, particularly from the Proverbs, the Psalms, the Law, about the Lord Yahweh blessing those who are poor. And so they believed that poverty was a way to achieve God's blessing. The Ebionites, like the Pharisees during the time of Jesus and the Judaizers during the time of the Apostles, believed that salvation depended on keeping the whole law of Moses. So, the Ebionites were not people who believed that salvation was by the grace of God. I'm sure they might use that term, but it would really mean that God grants grace in giving the law and allowing us a way to save ourselves by keeping the law. So, these people were a lot like the Jews that Jesus argued with during his day and what the Apostle Paul encountered with the Judaizers. The Ebionites' canon of Scripture didn't extend much past the Jewish canon. So, the Jewish canon is our Old Testament. What we call the Old Testament, they call the Tanakh. The word Tanakh is a Hebrew abbreviation for Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim. So, what are these? The Torah is the law which is the Pentateuch, the first five books, the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Now, the Nevi'im, or the prophets, are what we recognize as the major and minor prophets. You have major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. You have minor prophets like Amos and Obadiah and Joel. And then you have the Ketuvim, or the writings. So, the writings are the history of the kings and chronicles. You know, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. You also have the wisdom of the Proverbs, the poetry of the Psalms and the Song of Solomon. So, the Ketuvim, the writings, included history, poetry, wisdom. 
And so Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketavim, taken at together as one word and abbreviated, became Tanakh. And so that is really what we Christians would consider our Old Testament. Now, the Ebionites did expand on this a little bit. They really only added one gospel account to their Jewish canon, which seems to have been a heavily edited form of Matthew's gospel, at least according to some early church fathers. And this became known as the Gospel of the Ebionites. So the Ebionites had the Jewish scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, and then they had one gospel account, which possibly could be an edited version of Matthew's gospel account, to be edited according to Ebionite beliefs. And this Gospel of the Ebionites removed Matthew's account of Jesus' birth event, such as in the first two chapters, and began with his baptism. The Ebionites also rejected the virgin birth of Jesus and believed him to be the biological, natural son of Joseph and Mary. So, if you remove the first two chapters of Matthew, then naturally you don't have the virgin birth. Now, perhaps there were some minority groups of Ebionites that might have believed in the virgin birth, but officially the major sects of Ebionism uh, rejected the virgin birth. The Ebionites, as I said, that they only had one gospel account, they didn't really consider the New Testament writings otherwise inspired, and especially they rejected Paul's epistles as they believed Paul to be an apostate from the law, and the law of Moses was really important to the Ebionites, as still binding today in a way of salvation. The Ebionites did like what they called James the Just, Some may have regarded James as Jesus' successor for the church. So, you know, with the Roman Catholic Church, Peter's the first pope, the Ebionites may have uh, believed that Jesus set up James as his successor for continuing their church, and they may have believed in a form of apostolic succession from James. They believe that John the Baptist and Jesus were both vegetarians. Now, you may be scratching your head and wondering how that would work, especially with the Jewish feasts involving eating lambs. Yes, you had the kosher laws, but the kosher laws didn't force people to be vegetarian. There were clean and unclean animals. So, a fragment of what may be the Gospel of the Ebionites shows that it used the Greek word ekris, or cake, rather than akris for locust. So, instead of locusts and wild honey for John the Baptist's diet, it was wild honey which tasted like manna formed like cakes of oil. So, it was cakes and wild honey. So, John the Baptist didn't eat locusts. He was a vegetarian, according to the Ebionites. And of course, as I said, Jesus is also a vegetarian, so you might be wondering what happened. Didn't the, the, doesn't the gospel account say that Jesus went up to observe the Passover? Since Jesus was a vegetarian, according to the Ebionites, he obviously didn't eat lamb at the Passover, which would include the Last Supper. And one thing the Ebionites believed that Jesus did ultimately through his ministry was to get rid of animal sacrifices. Now, the reason for this was not because he would be the Lamb of God who would give his life as the ultimate atoning sacrifice as Christians believe. 
This was because God's plan would ultimately be to make his people vegetarians, or at least to protect them from defiling themselves with pagan meat sacrifices, you know, meat offered to idols. But now, so those are some of the beliefs of the Ebionites, but let's get into what's really important from the beliefs of the Ebionites. As I mentioned, they rejected the virgin birth. They believed he was the natural son of Mary and Joseph, both. So what does that do with how they think of Jesus? What is the nature of Jesus? Since Jesus was the natural-born son of Joseph and Mary consummating their marriage, then Jesus was only human, according to the Ebionites. Jesus was a wise teacher of the law and not divine at all. Thus, they didn't believe Jesus of Nazareth was in any way an incarnation. So Jesus was just a human like we are. Although Jesus was a superb human being and one of the great prophets, he was still not as great as Moses, according to the Ebionites. So Moses, just like any Jewish sect, Moses is in high regards. No one's going to be greater than Moses because if someone's greater than Moses, then naturally what they teach can supplant the Mosaic law, overturn it or replace it. And to Ebionites or to Judaizers or to anyone else, you do not mess with that law of Moses. Except the Ebionites did allow for Jesus to get rid of animal sacrifices, which were big in the law of Moses. So there were some things that they allowed to change, and this was because they were vegetarian. But Jesus was kind of like Batman to the Ebionites. He was physically disciplined to follow the law to the fullest. Jesus was mentally mentally disciplined to argue with religious opponents. So Jesus trained his body and mind, kind of like Batman trained his body and mind. And Jesus wasn't divine, just like Batman's not divine, even though he's really cool. Jesus wasn't necessarily the greatest human being who ever lived, but he was one of the greats. So, he was lesser than Moses. So, perhaps like the way Bane could overwhelm Batman toe-to-toe in the movie The Dark Knight Rises, Moses could overwhelm Jesus toe-to-toe in a battle of wits about the righteousness of God. So, although Jesus was one of the great prophets in Ebionism, Jesus is not the greatest human, we might give that title to Moses. So, according to Ebionism, Jesus is a lot like Batman. And now let's look at another idea from church history. This is later. Another idea about Jesus similar to the Ebionite idea came much later in church history. In fact, during the time of the early Reformation against the Roman Catholic Church, there were the Anabaptists as a part of what is often called the Radical Reformation. From Italy came Uncle Lelio Sozzini and Nephew Fausto Sozzini in the 16th century, in other words, the 1500s during the early days of the Reformation. What Lelio Sozzini started, Fausto Sozzini expanded and grew. And now, Fausto Sozzini is also known as Faustus Socinus from the Latin. And the doctrinal ideas from Faustus Socinus's writings became known as Socinianism. 
So what did Socinus teach? Um, like the Abionites, the Socinians believe that Jesus is only human by nature. But if we were to compare the Socinians to the Abionites, the Socinians are actually a little more orthodox than the Abionites. So let's see, how do the Socinians compare and how are they orthodox compared to the Abionites? Most Socinians accept the virgin birth of Jesus, unlike the Ebionites. They mostly accept the whole 66 books of the Bible as inspired scripture, unlike the Ebionites. Uh, Socinians believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah and that there is none after him, unlike the Ebionites. The Socinians believe that Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life under the law and was unique in this regard, unlike the Ebionites. The Socinians believe that Jesus died, was buried, and rose the third day, unlike the Ebionites, perhaps. They believe that Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead, unlike the Ebionites. They believe that Jesus will rule and reign in the new earth for eternity, unlike the Ebionites. But now, how do the Socinians differ from Orthodox Christianity? As I mentioned, they believe that Jesus was still only human in his being, even though he was virginly conceived and born of a virgin and lived a sinless life. And he being the only sinless human who ever lived, he was still only human. The Socinians do not believe that Jesus pre-existed his virgin conception in the womb of Mary in any way, except only as a concept or a plan in God's mind to create Jesus. So, with Socinianism, just like with Ebionism, there is no such a thing as an incarnation regarding Jesus. So, is Jesus like Batman? I'm presenting Ebionism and Socinianism as error, so I'm saying that Jesus is more than just a human being. But wait, in the previous episode, I said he was not like Superman because Superman was not human. So, am I trying to say that Jesus is both human and divine? Yes, we contrasted him with Superman by proving that he's fully human according to scriptures. And now we are contrasting him with Batman to prove that he's also fully divine. So Jesus is fully both human and divine. Now let's not get confused about what we mean when we say that Jesus is human and divine. He is not half man and half God or part man and part God. He is not a third thing that is a mixture of the two, and he hasn't lacked any component of either of the natures of humanity and divinity. He is one person, the divine second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, with two full and distinct natures that are united under the one person. Now we will explain this concept more with some later superheroes, but just understand that Jesus is one person, but with two full natures. He's fully human, fully divine, or 100% human and 100% divine. So, what are the problems with Ebionism or Socinianism with their regard for the nature of Jesus? When you believe that Jesus is only human, 
What are you left with doing? Well, the problem with Ebionism and Socinianism, just like the problem with Docetism and Gnosticism, as I mentioned in the last episode, is that it ultimately denies substitutionary atonement. But wait a minute, Daniel. You said in the last episode that the idea of Jesus as Superman denies substitutionary atonement because only a human could be our substitute for humans. And now you're saying that Jesus can't be our substitute if he's only human. Yes, what I am saying is that Jesus has to be fully human and fully divine to be our substitutionary atonement. Now, why is that? So, if Jesus is only human in the way like the Ebionites believe that he's a great teacher of the law, well, a great human teacher alone cannot be our substitute. So, let's look at Galatians chapter 4 and verses 1 through 5. The Apostle Paul says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. So what exactly does this passage have to do with the question, why is this passage saying that a great human teacher alone cannot be our substitute? Because, according to Ebionism, where Jesus is just human and just by his nature learns the law, he is under tutors, and so he has to be taught, and he is like we are in that regard. He has to be taught and he has to be disciplined to the fullest to follow the law. Now, our substitute cannot just be like us only in the respect of being under tutors and governors, even if he is the greatest human being who ever lived. At some point, if he's just human, he was just lower than other humans. But according to the Apostle Paul, our substitute has to be someone who sent from God a special son to be made under the law, to redeem them that are under the law. And following in this vein, point number two as to why a human-only Jesus cannot be our substitute is that a human who is merely subject to the law and not also the author of the law itself cannot be our substitute. As Matthew 12 verse 8 says, For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. So as Jesus was subject to the Sabbath, he was also the Lord of the Sabbath. And Matthew 9, 6 says, But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. The one who could be our substitute must also have the intrinsic authority of himself. 
If he just had to learn the law and wasn't also the Lord of the law, he could not at all times be perfectly submissive to the law. He could not also perfectly interpret the law as the one who is the perfect lawgiver. Because to know the mind of God would be to know the law to its fullest. And so a fallible human who is only a human, who is only under the law and is only subject to the law not also the lawgiver, cannot reliably be the one who could submit to the law perfectly. And now, one of the most important points that I want to make about some who is only human, and a human only, Jesus. Point number three, one who is merely another human being who is created by God, cannot be a substitute for many people. Let's look, for example, in the law. Remember, if Jesus is to be our substitute, he must be perfectly submissive to the law. He must be sinless. But what does the law itself say in Leviticus 24, verses 19 through 21? It says, And if a man cause a blemish in his neighbor, as he hath done, so shall it be done to him. Breach for breach, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, as he hath caused a blemish in a man, so shall it be done to him again. And he that killeth a beast, he shall restore it. And he that killeth a man, he shall be put to death. So what am I saying here? The law recognizes the concept of an eye for an eye. And so if you commit a murder, your punishment is murder. And so this will lead into what would be the substitutionary atonement, the actual payment for sins. John chapter 1 verse 29 The next day John sees Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. So Jesus as this Lamb couldn't just atone for the sins of one person. He has to be able to pay. He had to be able to take away the penalty of the sins of many people throughout the world. 1 Peter 2.24 The Apostle Peter says, "...who his own self bear our, plural, sins, plural, in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed." So Peter is saying that Jesus in his singular body bore our, plural, sins. Hebrews 9.28 says, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. And finally, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he, God, hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we, plural, might be made the righteousness of God in him. So why do I keep emphasizing the singular versus plural? So, if the law says that one human being would be killed for the crime of committing another, and think of some of the worst sins there, that would be murder. And so, one person, one human being, has only the worth, according to the law, of being able to substitute or replace, hypothetically, the sins of one other person. So, just think about it. 
If Jesus were only a human being, and he were to atone for the capital crimes, that deserving death of one person, then his substitute would pay for the sins of one other human being. But if Jesus is not just human, but is fully divine, he's fully God, and God is the giver of the law, and the worth of such a one as God could be sufficient then to atone for the sins and capital crimes of many people. He could be sufficient to pay all that penalty. And that is why I say that Jesus has to be both fully human to be a substitute and be fully God to provide the substitutionary atonement for all people who would be saved, including all their capital crimes. And no matter how heinous the sin, the atonement of Jesus Christ itself must be sufficient to pay all the penalty of all that sin. And Jesus must have the nature and the worth to be able to bear all that penalty. So what are some verses now against Ebionism or Socinianism, the view of Jesus being only human? Well, Jesus is actually called God in some scriptures. So let's look at John 20 verses 28 through 29. This is after Jesus' resurrection and Thomas saw the wounds. And according to the passage, it says, and Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God, Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. So, Jesus is affirming that the statement that Thomas made is an expression of faith, true faith. And what did Thomas say? He said, my Lord and my God. Now, of course, some people like Socinians will try to claim that Thomas was directing the statement to God, like he's making a statement like, now I see Jesus, oh, my Lord and my God. But that's not what Thomas was doing. It specifically says that he said to him, to Jesus, my Lord and my God. And the the fact that the Greek cases of these nouns are in the nominative case doesn't disprove this. They don't have to be what's called in the vocative case or direct address to prove that Thomas was calling Jesus my Lord and my God, because during the Koine period, uh, using the vocative case of direct address regularly was kind of going out of common fashion, and there are other scriptures where you see that the nominative case, the simple subject case is used for direct address. And so it's perfectly acceptable for Thomas to address Jesus saying, my Lord and my God in the nominative case. And also let's look at Psalm 35, 23. If we look at this in the Septuagint in the Greek, it says, stir up thyself and awaken to my judgment, even to my cause, my God and my Lord. Now the psalmist is addressing Yahweh God and he calls him my God and my Lord. And so in the Greek in John 20, 28, when Thomas tells Jesus, my Lord and my God, it's Hakuriasmu kai hatheasmu. And in Psalm 35, 23, in the Septuagint, the Greek there is hatheasmu kai hakuriasmu. It's the same exact Greek words, just the order of God and Lord is switched. It doesn't change the meaning of anything. So it's similar there. 
When Thomas refers to Jesus as my Lord and my God, it's the same words as David or the psalmist referring to Yahweh as my God and my Lord. Now, Psalm 45, 6, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy righteousness is a right scepter. Now, some people try to claim that this isn't really addressing God, that it's saying, God is your throne. But Psalm 145, verse 13 says that the throne of Yahweh is forever. So, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, most likely means that the throne of God is forever. And now we compare this because it's quoted in Hebrews 1.8, where the writer to the Hebrews says, But unto the Son he, the Father, saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. So, what the psalmist is saying to God himself, Your throne is forever and ever, the writer of the Hebrews applies this to the Son. It's the Father speaking to the Son, saying, Your throne, O God, is for and ever and ever. And this is after him saying in verse 6 that all the angels should worship the Son. And so this seems like likely as evidence to show that Jesus as the Son is indeed God. Now, also, Jesus is given the attributes of God in Scripture. We see in Colossians 2.9, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead, or divinity, bodily. And then in Psalm 102, verses 24 through 27, the psalmist says, I said, O my God, take me not away in the midst of my days. Thy years are throughout all generations. Of old hast thou laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment. As a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. So the psalmist is talking to God and says that he is unchanging and eternal, unlike the creation that is changing and wears out. And now we go back to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. And this is continuing what the Father says to the Son. And it says, And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens of the works of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they shall all wax old as doth a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. So this is the writer of the Hebrews once again taking words that are applied to God and making God the Father speak them to Jesus the Son. And so by applying the attributes of God to the Son, doesn't that make him God? And now Isaiah 44 verse 6 says, Thus saith the Lord Yahweh, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord Yahweh of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. So the statements of claiming to be the first and the last has to do with there being no other God, because it's saying that he's eternal. And now we look at Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 through 18. And this is John seeing Jesus. 
And John says, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. And so Jesus is claiming to be the first and the last, but he also says that he is living and was dead. And so the one who died died and rose again is also claiming to be the first and the last. And if you remember from Isaiah 44, 6, beside me there is no God. So the scriptures attest that Jesus is God by being called God and being given the attributes of God. But lastly, let's see where the scriptures show that Jesus is worshipped as God. Isaiah 45 verses 21 through 23 says, Tell ye and bring them near, yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Look unto me, and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else." I have sworn by myself, the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. Now pay attention to this. That unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. So the statement that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear is in the context of the idolatry of the Israelites worshiping other false gods and God is saying, I am God and there is none else. But now let's look at Philippians 2 verse 10. The Apostle Paul says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, kurios, to the glory of God the Father. So how can God the Father be glorified if Jesus is also not God with him? Because it says that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear, confessing that Jesus is Lord. And yet God says in the context of idolatry that no one should bow to any other God, but that every knee should bow and every tongue should swear to him. This was an act of worship. So how can God say that, that doing this to anything else is a false God and it's idolatry, yet it would glorify him that you confess that Jesus is Lord? Continuing on, Revelation 4, verses 10 through 11. The four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne, which is a reference to God the Father, and worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. So this is the vision of John in heaven, seeing the 24 elders, they fall down, they bow before the one seated on the throne, which is God the Father. They say he is worthy to receive glory and honor and power. This is worship, divine worship. And now we go to the next chapter, Revelation 5, verses 12 through 14, and we see something interesting. It says, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. 
and every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb for ever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped. So it seems like the one who sits on the throne, God the Father, and the Lamb received the same worship. Both are said to be worthy to receive glory and honor and power. And now, lastly, let's look at an example of what happens when John bows down before someone other than God. So, Revelation 19.10, John sees an angel prophesy, and he says, And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See, thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So the angel tells him to bow down, worship God, not him. In Revelation 22, verses 8 through 9, And I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Then said he unto me, See, thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book. Worship God or fall prostrate before God. So, this was the angel rejecting this kind of religious worship, but we definitely see it happen in Revelation chapter 5 to God and to the Lamb. The exact same worship, divine religious worship. So, if Jesus is given the worship due to God properly, then shouldn't that also make him God, as he's called God and given the attributes of God in Scripture? So, to conclude, we need to be careful that we don't concentrate so much on what makes Jesus human that we sacrifice what makes him not like us. We need to be careful that we don't focus so much on his humanity that we sacrifice all or part of his divinity. We need to avoid the temptation to treat Jesus like Batman. Jesus is more than just a human, or even the best human who ever will live. He didn't just come to be an example or to show the way. He came to be born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem them that are under the laws, Galatians 4, 4-5 through 5 says. He came to gather a people to God from their own chains and penalty of sin. He came to be a substitute and die to pay the price for the sins of multitudes of people, no matter how great those sins are. A mere mortal cannot do that to satisfy God and to fulfill the law that says this is the penalty for this sin, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. Someone who is only human could not possibly bear that penalty. He would have to have a value and a nature that far exceeds that of any one human being alone. Frankly, the only one who could satisfy God's redemptive plan had to be God himself. Is Jesus like Batman? No, Jesus cannot be like Batman. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. 
Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso.